Turkey time, turkey time, turkey, turkey, turkey time. Look at your feathers, look at your beak. I'm going to eat the shit out of it this week. And I have. I don't know why you didn't do it's turkey lurky time. Yeah, because I wanted to make up my own shit. Favorite Thanksgiving food. What is it? Uh, you know what? This is going to be a little controversial. It's stuffing. But what kind of stuffing? Like homemade, like box stuffing? Oh, any fucking, any kind. Stovetop. I don't give a shit. Just as long as it's stuffing <laughs> and it's delicious and it's in my face. <laughs> I made a new stuffing this year. It's a chorizo cornbread stuffing. Put it in my mouth. Oh, that's what she said. <laughs> and she literally just said that. Um, the best part is I made two pans of it because I knew that I was going to have leftovers. I might Can not have you? even taken a pan to our destination <laughs> because I just took one pan. And then I was like, I knew I'm going to eat this other pan. So I just left it. And I was like, oh, no, I forgot that. Can you please nah, I've left it. send me that recipe? 100%. For everyone who's listening, if you missed the blog this week, that's the blog is Andrew and Jess's favorite Thanksgiving recipes. So get over to tmtcpodcast.com slash blog and get your recipes here. Well, not it's it's recipe. What's your recipe? <laughs> that's problematic for the blog because my favorite Thanksgiving food is cranberry sauce out of a can. Like an ocean spray cranberry sauce? I love it so much. And Andrew, I have to tell you something. Like everyone I know knows I love it so much. Have you actually I, bathed in it? Yes. I <laughs> <laughs> I direct every summer at this theater in Colorado. And one of the former board members got wind of how much I love cranberry sauce. Uh-huh. And out of nowhere a couple of years ago, in the mail here in New York, I received from her a 1960s sterling silver cranberry sauce platter and like server for the canned cranberry sauce. Uh, do you have it on hand? Can you show it to us really quick? Do you have it? Yeah. Yeah. If you have Can you run over and grab it? Because yeah, I want to see it. It's going to be so good. Hang on. Yeah. Oh, God. Ladies and gentlemen, she's on a chair. Please don't fall. Welcome to Take Me to Coffee. This is a mentorship podcast for the digital age, for the doers, the rule breakers, people who are building it from the ground up. That's you. It is you. And here's the thing about you. We all need a little help sometimes. (laughs) So this is your weekly chance to get personal with people who've been down the road before you. And soak up a whole lot of inspiration from every corner of the internet. Are you even ready for this? Oh my God. Cranberry set. Stainless steel. Stain- oh yeah, it's not silver. It's stainless steel, which is good because then I don't have to polish Even better. It. it doesn't rust. Or oxidize, some might say. Here's the spoon. I'm so excited. It's like a ladle, all out. but not. Yeah, with like, with like It's like a knife ladle. Well, it's got uh, perforations in it because it won't yeah, suck it tight to the, to the cranberry itself. I know. The thing about this Thanksgiving is I had a bunch of places to go. Like I kind of did a world mm-hmm. tour. I went to like Jersey to hang out with my friends and her kids. Uh, and then I had to go to Midtown and then ended up back in the neighborhood. And so I was like, what? how do I take things? And the one thing I demanded I be able to take to each of the locations was a can of cranberry sauce and that serving platter. <laughs> Wait, did you wash it after every single stop, yes! though? Yes. You dump the can out, <laughs> cut the shit, eat at one location, and then rinse it, wash it, box it, take it to the next location, rinse and repeat? Are you fucking kidding me? That Look, is I, diligence to the sauce. I am committed to the sea sauce. <laughs> To the sea sauce. Oh, it sounds so gross when you say yeah, it like it does. that. It does. It's so disgusting. Well, I don't care. I love cranberry sauce. So you made the circuitous route back to your house via 
cranberry saucing, <laughs> sea saucing. Um, do you have another favorite dish? Is there anything like? Are you an absolute like a turkey kind of gal? That's a good do question. You, what are your What are your Thanksgiving must haves? I actually don't like turkey very much, okay. and so one of the reasons I went all the way out to Jersey is because my friends were making cocovang. Is that how you say it? Cocovang. Yeah, it's cocovang. Cocovang. <laughs> when you when you say it, it just it sounds so pretentious. But can you explain to our listeners what coco vin exactly? I don't is? know. It's just really good. It's chicken, and it takes like thirteen hours to make. It's essentially like, stew pot chicken. Okay, braised, baked. Let's put the recipe in the notes. Actually, I'd love a classic coco vin preparation. Fair, fair. Put in the show yeah. notes. Just for those people who are like, what the fuck is Coco Vaughn? Uh, the other thing that I love, I had no idea I was so passionate about Thanksgiving food. I I love this right now. I love that we've gone down a rabbit hole for your your love of <laughs> We need to talk about mincemeat pie, which is another whoa, one of my whoa, favorite foods wow. ever. So mincemeat pie is like a farm food originally. It was kind of like a way to use all of the animal when you slaughtered it on the farm. Okay. And then you would put fruit and spices, brandy, and it is so good. No one in New York has ever heard about it. And I bring it to every single Thanksgiving I go to here because everybody's like, what is that? Have you had it? I have had what we're talking about version of mincemeat pie, but I've also had the original version of a mincemeat pie, which you have? is early mincemeat pie was known by several names, including mutton pie, shrid pie, or Christmas mm. pie. Shrid Typically, pie. its ingredients were a mixture of minced meat, suet, a range of fruits and spices such as cinnamon, cloves, and nutmeg served around Christmas, a savory pie. Yep. Okay. I did once have beef tendons and tripe at a Szechuan place here in New York, and it was delicious. Oh, yum. Tripe. Which, for our listeners out there, is actually the lower intestine of a yeah. pig. <laughs> yeah. And, Gross. I mean, some people eat ass. <laughs> Literally. Oh, God. I can't believe our producer's you just face. Said that. She's not happy. She's not happy with me today. Oh, God. We should, before mm-hmm. we go on, if you're listening, send us and tweet us your favorite Thanksgiving foods. Yeah. I'm actually legitimately curious. And if you're with me on the sea sauce and the mincemeat, let me know. Uh, I also want to know, sidebar, um, this is like questionnaire number two. I want to know what your favorite bits of Ofal are. And if those of you don't know what Ofal are, is the, you know, less used pieces of animals <laughs> that uh, so get weird. eaten in dishes. I'm kind of obsessed with it, actually. Like, what are people cooking up? Like, head cheese and things like that. Uh, Let us know. Write us in. Let us know. You culinary-minded maniacs out there. Hard pivot (laughs) to today's episode. (laughs) That's a fucking intro if I've ever heard one to nothing. Yeah, hard pivot to the actual episode today. I mean, if you haven't figured it out... Everyone knows it's Giving Tuesday today. Happy Giving Tuesday. See, we're giving knowledge. We're giving information. We're giving really just our own <laughs> opinions about things. So get ready for giving. <laughs> if you are new to the fam, TM2C Podcast was created by Broadway Unlocked, which is the company that I founded that bridges the gap between technology and theater. And one of the things we do every year is the Give Back Concert. The Give Back Concert brings theater people all across the world together through a mixture of live performance, digital media, and interactive technology. And we all stand up together on the same night and raise our voices for the causes that we care about in our communities. And that started with our concert here in New York, the main one. And 
that concert raises money for Crime Victims Treatment Center, which is a place where survivors of violence can receive free treatment and therapy, regardless of financial ability. And it's in a really important place that has a hard time raising private funds because it's hard to talk about sexual assault and domestic abuse. So they're heavily reliant on just like grants and stuff like that. So when we were sitting and thinking about what we could do for Giving Tuesday, in addition to the Give Back concert for CBTC, we realized we had a really incredible platform with the podcast to have a mentorship, a coffee date with two people who are experts around the issue of violence. One, Antoine Ramon, who's a survivor and co-cast member of Hamilton with you, Andrew, and Lindsay Hanawi, who's the sexual assault program coordinator for Crime Victims Treatment Center. What we hope to achieve today is that we kind of destigmatize and demystify the embarrassment. I want to get rid of like shrouded in secrecy kind of a thing, like why it's such a problem for people to talk about this kind of thing. It's a very sensitive subject. It's a very, very touchy topic to discuss, even with f- close friends and family. It's a difficult thing. And I hope that we kind of achieve, you know, some mm-hmm. of those, some of those answers today. And that's, those are the questions that I have. Yeah. I think, I think what you were saying is so exciting that we're in a time and place where like people really want to dive in and talk about this and feel free to ask questions, even if, you know, you don't know if they're appropriate or right, because that's the only way we learn. And I think that's my, the thing I'm most excited about with this episode that we're doing today. Yeah, it's exciting. It's difficult. But these are the questions that we need to ask. Mm -hmm. So the best part about all of this is you get to listen to this amazing episode, learn a whole lot about what to do if you're a friend of someone who survived violence, what what your options are if you are a survivor of violence, and sort of what it's like to work with survivors or be one. Then go to our YouTube page for Broadway Unlocked. It's youtube.com slash Broadway Unlocked. And we actually released today every single performance from the Give Back concert last year, videos on on our YouTube page. And the really cool thing, Andrew, is all of our writers, except one who had just had a baby and was super busy, mm-hmm. they all wrote original songs based on the writings of survivors who've come through Crime Victims Treatment Center. That's amazing. As always, don't forget to head over to Twitter and follow us at TM2C Podcast. Let us know who you'd like to be a guest on the show. You can leave us a video ask for an upcoming guest. And we always have really great clips from the episode over there, too, if you want to go and revisit something you heard today on this episode. We hope that you enjoy this very special Giving Tuesday episode of Take Me to Coffee with Antoine Magic Ramon and Lindsay Hanawi of CVTC. Thank you guys so much for being with us. Thank happy you, Giving thank Tuesday. You, thank you. Yes, happy Giving thank Tuesday. You. Yay. Giving, giving Tuesday. Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> what do you shop for on Cyber Friday? Is it Cyber Friday? Black Black, Black Friday, Friday, Cyber Monday. Oh, it's Cyber Giving Monday. Tuesday. Well, giving Tuesday. It's for Jesus all those guilty Christ. people out there spending a shit ton of money on things they don't really need, and then they give back on Tuesday. <laughs> do you guys think that like Giving Tuesday is actually, if it was like the Thursday before Black Friday, do you think that people would give more or less? What's the vote? Ooh, hmm. good question. I think probably less. Right. Do you feel guilty after the spending, so you give more on Tuesday? I think people are probably so overwhelmed leading up to Thanksgiving and then preparing for Black Friday. That's fair. That they, I think, to ask them to think about something else <laughs> before <laughs> that would be overwhelming. Right. I don't okay. do Black Friday shopping. I don't do Cyber Monday shopping. Uh, I don't shop for anyone. <laughs> Someone just like like a good friend was like, yeah, we do a tradition. We go out and shop on Black Friday in New York City. I was like, you're out of your fucking mind. <laughs> I had a stage manager and she would take her child with her at whatever time in the morning, but her kid loved it. And her child was 
close to double digits, if not in double digits. So it was a, a ritual for them as a family. Oh if that's God. part of the tradition, yeah. I mean, we, we trim the tree at Thanksgiving. Uh, you mm. go to Black Friday specials at 5 a.m. That's what some people do. Or what, what is it like one holiday between the two of you guys? What is a holiday tradition that you guys do? <laughs> In your family. Antoine's like, I've been doing a show on the holidays for my whole life. <laughs> Forever. <laughs> right. It's true. Well, something that is new. I have two older sisters and they each have, like the oldest sister has two boys. And then my other sister has, between her and her husband, five daughters. And there are grandchildren involved. And since there's so many now in the past few years on Thanksgiving, they draw names for Secret Santa. So you're only shopping Aww. for one person. Smart. Now, if you choose to shop for like the great grandkids, you know, the great nieces, then you're the welcome to. Yeah, but you yeah. are only <laughs> obligated to the one name you draw. And that's really nice. And even though I've not been there, I can still participate and I mail my gift and my gift gets mailed to me. So that's been fun. And that's something that we never did even as a family when I was a kid. <laughs> so. Right. I mean, that is something that brings people together, right? I mean, I like that. I think yeah. we, we just started doing the same thing once cousins started getting older. We were like, God, it's so expensive to buy for everybody. But we started mm-hmm. doing the Secret Santa thing. And now my other cousin, one of my cousins from Oklahoma, is like, let's do a dirty Santa only between the other cousins. <laughs> only between the cousins. There's like a separate gift giving that goes on. But it is like oh, a, like a dirty, like a it's prank like cool version. Kids. A cool kids version. Sure. I feel like I'm in a, like a John Hughes film or something. And uh, I was listening to some other podcast. I can't remember the name of it right now. We don't talk about other podcasts on here. <laughs> no other exists. It's only take me to coffee. Uh, but the guy was saying for his mother-in-law, he bought her like a 10-inch dildo <gasps> for Christmas and that's gave it hilarious. to her at the family that's Christmas dinner. Hero shit right there. And she opened it up. And the fop, like the husband of the of the, his father-in-law lost his shit. <laughs> thought it was hilarious oh my god that's bold my first statement would be like well at least somebody made a sculpture of it (laughs) that's a solid answer that's a solid reply i'm gonna need a good christmas song based off of dildo christmas oh i would listen to that really solid like jingle ball style listeners and viewers please submit your requests no i want i just want to see a lot of like treatments i want to see a lot of like uh if you can do video asks or anything like that of just like what was the subtext it'd be a song of this moment and this woman's 10-inch dildo discovery. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you might be inclined to think that we're here to discuss dildo Christmas songs, but in fact, Mm -hmm. we are all here (laughs) to celebrate Giving Tuesday and the Crime Victims Treatment Center, which is an incredible place that you absolutely should go donate your money to. And we wanted to open it up to have a conversation about a really hard topic that I think people are really scared and worried to have, which is surrounding survivors of violence. And so we're really thankful that you guys came here, were willing to talk dildos with us for a second. And I imagine we have a lot to talk about on this topic. So I think we should probably get right to it. Absolutely. I think the violence spans not just, you know, physical violence, emotional, uh, mental. There's all kinds of different, you know, depictations of violence out there. And I I think that you guys, uh, CBTC, Crime Victims Treatment Center does a really good job of kind of encompassing all types of violence or manipulation. Uh, you guys do a really great job of like helping them and moving forward through uh, whatever emotional barriers or you know mental blocks or physical blocks sometimes you know with anxiety and pain things like that that come up. Please, can you just explain like a little bit of what you guys do? I can absolutely talk about what we do, and thank you so much for having me on and giving me the opportunity to talk about this organization that I love very deeply and feel very proud to be part of. 
The Crime Victims Treatment Center has existed since 1977, and we provide free trauma therapy to any survivor of a crime. And so that means anyone who has had an experience of violence can come to us to receive ongoing therapeutic services. We provide individual therapy, group therapy. We also, as of late, have a, or very recently, we have a legal services team. So we provide a really comprehensive support to survivors in their time of need to help them along their healing journey. All of our services are completely free. We also have an advocate program through which we are connected with uh, several hospitals throughout New York City, such that anyone who comes to a hospital emergency room in the aftermath of a sexual assault or a domestic violence incident can be paired with one of our specially trained volunteers or specially trained medical providers to receive like totally individualized protective care. And then provided that they give consent for us to reach out to them within 48 hours, we reach out and offer our services and get them connected um, almost immediately, basically, to the emotional support and healing that we very much hope to be able to offer them. Mic drop. <laughs> what an amazing outlet. You know? Yeah, seriously. Like, I did what? not drop it. Don't worry. <laughs> no, okay. Thank God. Ugh. Anyways, jokes aside, like what an unbelievable place for people to go and to to feel welcome and to feel comfortable. And Lindsay, I have a question. Like what what kind of got you started into down this path? Like what was what was your main impetus for starting with the Crime Victims Treatment Center? So I, through um, the grace of the universe, got placed here while I was in grad school. I was very much interested. I was studying social work and I was very much interested in doing trauma therapy and working with survivors survivors of violence. Uh, It was work that I had done before and meant a lot to me personally and professionally. And I was really drawn in particular, not just to working with survivors, but to working with survivors who live at the intersection of multiple marginalized identities and experiences. And Mm. given that all of CVTC services are free, we really do see a very wide range of folks from all different backgrounds who really wouldn't have access to this kind of care elsewhere. So it seemed really perfect. I ended up here. I loved it so much that I came back as a staff person. Yeah. Um, and it's it's been wonderful to be back for sure. Just phenomenal. And um, did you find yourself while you were uh, like finding your dual master's degrees in social work and public health, did you see that this was always something that you wanted to do? Was it always a place that you've kind of felt that was like your, your uh, calling or whatever? Or was it when you started working for CBTC, you were like, oh my God, this is it. I found it. This is the door. You know what I would say, despite how awesome we are, I actually didn't really know about CVTC before I got here. I knew a little bit. When I heard about it, I was like, this sounds great. And I remember walking out of my interview and being like, this is a place that changes lives. This is absurd Mm. how amazing it is. And I want to be part of this. And I felt so lucky that I got the chance to be as an intern and to do all my training here. And now that I get to be here as a staff person doing work that confirmed really does change lives in a way that's been so wonderful to be part of. And this is the connect, right, with Antoine then is that Antoine actually went through CVTC's programs and was a part of an, one of their amazing programs for sort of marginalized survivors, right? The male survivor therapy and Sexual programs yeah, that you guys provide. So tell us a little bit about that, Antoine. Yeah, so I uh, am a survivor of sexual violence, childhood sexual abuse, and was a client of the CVTC back in 2010. After going through my initial round of therapy with them, I immediately told my therapist, a wonderful woman by the name of Amy Carp. I love her so much. Shout out to Amy Carp, one of the best human <laughs> yes. beings in the world. <laughs> I told her, I said, if you ever need a male survivor to speak on your behalf, please let me know because I 
didn't and don't have like the kind of money you can just give to <laughs> to an organization <laughs> that will really be helpful to to them and i also didn't have access to names or people who could give them that money and i said to her i said but i'm willing to speak i have a voice that's what i can offer you and that's what i'm mm-hmm. willing to offer you and so the first time i spoke on their behalf was actually maybe a year or two after that. And they used to be federally funded and connected with two major hospitals in New York. And they just didn't have enough funding. And so they had federal grants and they were at risk of losing that federal grant. And so Amy and probably even Christopher Bromson, who was who did my intake <laughs> interview way back when, contacted me and said, would you be willing to speak at this city hall public hearing? I said, what do you need me to do? I said, you'll have three minutes. (laughs) You have to write up a speech and you have to make a copy for each person on the panel and you show up and we will send someone with you so you will not be alone. We have another survivor that's willing to speak as well. I said, great. Let me know what time, what date. I'll be there. I showed up the other person who had volunteered and ended up not being able to make it. So it was just me. We waited around all day because it's a city hall hearing and they run over time whereas i started with three minutes i ended up having 90 seconds oh my god so i did some very quick edits of my (laughs) talk (laughs) also by the end of the day it was close to 5 p.m i'd say there were maybe five people in front of me out of i think 12 or more that were Mm. initially there at the start of the day. And I just shared Mm. my story with them and how I came to find the CBTC, why I went there, what it means to me, what it has done for me, what it can do for other people. And they were able to get their federal funding reinstated for the following year. You're a hero. (laughs) So powerful. Thank you. Seriously. Fast forward to three years ago, Christopher Bromson uh, reached out to me and asked if I'd be willing to be on the Office of Victim Services Advisory Council that had to deal with planning for a very large conference that includes New York statewide, not just Manhattan, but Mm -hmm. we're talking, I mean, it's a massive region of service providers. Mm -hmm. And there's a conference held every two years. And so I was on the planning committee for that two years ago and was helping sort out presenters and speakers and things of that nature and all of the details for the conference. And then I also submitted a proposal to be a speaker and was chosen to be a plenary speaker. So I spoke to like over a hundred service providers at the conference two years ago in Albany, which was remarkable. Mm. For someone who came into the system as a client to get a very specific service from the CBTC to then fast forward several years later to be on this advisory council and to see the wealth of services that are provided for people across the board from housing to legal to you know how to safely plan for if you are trying to get out of a situation of domestic violence I mean, just across the board, it's remarkable to see how much work is being done by people that we will never see and never know exist. And it is so wonderful to be able to see these faces and hear their voices and hear their stories. But I still want to do as much as I can for them because they have done so much for me. Cool. So the thing that ties all of us together and the reason we're doing this special episode of Take Me to Coffee is because sexual assault and domestic violence, it's hard shit to talk about. But when you talk about it, it destigmatizes it. When you talk about it, it removes barriers 
to access help at places like CVTC. And so this episode is all about bringing these amazing resources, Antoine and Lindsay, together to answer questions we collected on the internet and provide like a safe space to ask like the shit we don't know, we don't understand, we're going to fucking talk about it on this episode. And hopefully everyone who's listening will join us and be a part of this idea that we can discuss this topic and we can support our friends who've gone through this. And it is not as stigmatizing as I think it has been, you know, over the years. So first and foremost, let's start. I feel like a question I get a lot is like the words. What words do we use when we talk about this? And I know there are differences between like victim and survivor. And I've noted when I listen to you talk, Antoine, you're very specific about saying you're a survivor of sexual violence, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So would you guys just talk us through a little bit of the language around this? Because I think that's the easiest thing all of us can do walking away from this episode today is like maybe tailor our language hmm. to be as helpful as possible. I'll let Lindsay start and then I'll just like chime in with why I choose what I choose after that. Perfect. Man, I was going to tell you to start. All right. (laughs) (laughs) This is going well, everyone. (laughs) My response is super brief. I default to survivor. I think victim can sometimes be kind of stigmatized. That said, there are also people who I think allowing someone to choose the language that feels most comfortable to them and and being willing Mm -hmm. to honor that language is really important. And another way we could return power and agency to survivors. So I default to survivor, but I know that there are for everyone who has survived an experience like this, they may have a different relationship to these words and may have different requests around what language is used. So for that, for us, is that just a matter of mirroring? Like whatever we hear that someone who has survived violence say we mirror back to them? It can be, absolutely. And I think it's always great to check in with people too. If you notice that they are using a particular term, you could be like, is that the language you want me to use? How would you Mm -hmm. like me to talk about this with you? That's great. So for me, I wouldn't have... Well, I think in college, when I would disclose to people, I would say, oh, I was sexually abused as a child uh, or when I was younger. It wouldn't be until I got services at the CBTC that then I started adapting survivor because it just that was a word. For those of you who are able to visually see me, I just sat up. Mm-hmm. It's empowering. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's yes. just it's the word itself. It's very empowering. Yeah. And so that's why I go towards saying I'm a survivor. And the reason I use, I've started using sexual violence more recently because I don't, for myself personally, I don't necessarily need to say sexual abuse, sexual assault. I think violence, we all know what violence is and we all have an idea of how we are affected by violence. I think by using like sexual abuse, sexual assault, for me personally, there can be Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Minimizing. Like Mm. that can allow for space of minimizing. Abuse is different to one person than assault is to another. And, Mm. but I think sexual violence is like, Oh, okay. There's a severity and a, and it elicits a different reaction, you know, just orally. And and then from there I can choose how much information I offer you to explain what that is for myself. Mm. But I think Mm -hmm. for me in using sexual violence, it speaks to the severity of what it is. I think it cuts through possibly confusion or maybe Mm -hmm. even noise. And I, and I don't mean to say that as like I'm using as a buzzword or no, it's just a, clarification of specificity. Yeah, that makes sense. Great. Thanks. That's really, that's super helpful. And like I said, I think that's one of the things I get asked most often is like, what words do we use? How do we talk about this? It's a good way to start the episode. Yeah. (laughs) You mentioned something, Antoine, about all that wealth of services that the CBTC provides. And Lindsay, you said the same thing. So we have a question specifically about one of the little like niches of services that CBTC happens to provide. So let's start there. 
Does the CVTC use alternative holistic therapies? And have you had personal positive or negative experiences with alternatives to traditional therapies? Uh, first of all, what does that even mean? What are traditional therapies and what are alternatives? Educate us dummies over here. <laughs> um, I would say it is not a dumb question to not know the distinction because distinctions are often arbitrary and based on our own positionality and our own training. But I think often what people are referring to when they talk about holistic or alternative therapies are things like acupuncture, spiritual work, maybe things that are more body-based or somatics, um, things that you would wouldn't necessarily get from your stereotype of therapy of like sitting in an office and mm -hmm. talking to someone. Mm -hmm. um, and the answer is, yes, we do. Um, <laughs> we have a Sally, a lovely complimentary therapist. We have a regular acupuncture group. There's also a lot of chakra based healing that comes up in some of the groups here. I would say personally, I definitely tend to lean toward the witchy and spiritual in my clinical practice. <laughs> and so even when I'm doing so called traditional therapy, I'm absolutely making space for the various ways that people heal and learn to feel safe in their bodies, in the world, just what they need to feel like they have the sense of themselves that they want to develop and that often the trauma robs of them. Mm. Um, and that looks so different for so many people. And if that means consulting with, you know, spirit guides or holding space for what would be considered alternative or witchy or like literally physically holding crystals to ground, I think there's Absolutely. That kind of stuff that can happen here, both in the so-called traditional therapy and in the complementary therapy services we provide. Did you uh, go through any of that or use any of that, Antoine? No, I went the more traditional talk therapy route. Mm -hmm. And even when I went in and met with Christopher and had my intake, I said to him point blank, I've asked all the questions I can think to ask myself and haven't found any answers that I'm happy with. Mm. And I need someone else to start asking the questions. Mm. I love you. It's so beautiful. <laughs> wow. I'm fascinated by the idea of different types of trauma out there, the different type of violence, and there's different type of opinion or um, perception to that violence. And then there's just so many different ways of accessing that and being able to treat that violence. You know what I mean? Like, of course, it depends on your personality. It depends on what type of person you are, how you learn. Are you textual? Are you tactile? Are you, you know, somebody who holds crystals? You need something physical. Or are you somebody who needs to talk that out? You know what I mean? Are you more cerebral in that nature? And I love that you guys are offering so many brilliant options for that. That's just so special. It is, it's specific, but it's also very all-encompassing, which I love that you guys are doing that. Absolutely. And something else I want to point out about CVTC that is specifically and especially unique to them they were, and Lindsay will correct me if I'm wrong, the first to offer services to male survivors because there are a lot of organizations that provide services that are either not equipped to or just may not welcome men, which I can understand from a safety standpoint. But the fact that the CVTC offers and has available males services as well is incredibly unique. Yeah. So Lindsay, is there specific, like in the male program, for instance, like are there specific approaches to the therapy and treatment for male survivors? Or does it that just mean it's a safe space or place for males to receive that therapy and treatment? I would say it's more the latter. And I, I think what I truly love about CVTC is that we don't even necessarily have a distinct program exclusively for males, but this is just a space where survivors of 
of all genders and all experiences can come here to heal. Mm -hmm. Often, like Antoine pointed out, a lot of these spaces are gendered. Um, A lot of domestic violence programs in particular are housed in what's traditionally deemed women's spaces. And that's not inclusive of male survivors. It's not inclusive of trans and gender nonconforming survivors. It's sometimes not even inclusive of women survivors who have abusers who are also women. So we really do need to be complicating these narratives of who is a survivor, what does a survivor look like, who were they harmed by, and create spaces where regardless of your identity, you can come and you can be heard and seen for who you are and really supported in your healing. What I love is that this is a place where I really do feel that that happens. Did you guys find in your development of these programs, did you find a bit of like heteronormative pushback or like an influence on how you guys were going to run this program? Was there even a conversation? It was like, no, it's open to all. We're going to open this thing up. Where did you go into it wide open? I think that's a fascinating question about the early history. So CVTC actually was developed in response to a sort of well-known case of a survivor who experienced sexual assault in broad daylight on a campus of Columbia, so like Morningside Heights area, went to the hospital. No one really knew what to do with a survivor of sexual assault. And so her being a woman was sort of perceived as like, she's really upset. This is a lot. And she was moved to the psychiatric unit which is, we now know, not an affirming response or validating or <laughs> safe response for a survivor of sexual violence at all. And the really the outrage at that from advocates in the neighborhood, our founder, Susan Zanarios, was at the time a social worker at the hospital, really came together and they were like, absolutely not, this cannot happen. Having not been part of those conversations at that time, I, I think it was just always seen as like, if you come to the hospital, if you are hurt, you deserve to feel safe. That said, the landscape of services across the city, across the country, are often gendered or often heteronormative because that's a society we live in, right? Mm -hmm. And it's really special that we can be in a space where we are trying to actively work against that. And in some ways, we we participate in, you know, we have gendered support groups. We have a female survivors group, a male survivors group. And in other ways, we are really making space for people, however they may identify, to come here and receive the services that help them feel safe again and feel whole. What do you think? I mean, I know there are a wide amount of reasons to the answer to my question, so I'm going to narrow it. What do you think are a couple of the biggest reasons someone doesn't go to get help when they have survived an instance of violence? Oh, that is a big question. I know. Sorry. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's a good one. Mm-hmm. Um, the ones we want to ha- have asked. Yeah. <laughs> I'm happy to answer that. I would also love to hear uh, your thoughts on this as well, Antoine, but I would say that so many people rightfully so, are picking up on the stigma that exists. And they know that if they are to disclose what happened to them, they can't necessarily trust that they will be believed, that they will be supported, that they will receive the help and validation and care that they need. They have so many questions about what is my life going to look like? Am I going to be known as the person this happened to and nothing else? Are people going to see me differently? Is this going to you know, shape how I am and how I move through the world going forward? There are so many reasons why, again, rightfully so, people don't trust that there will be supportive, affirming spaces out there because historically, and even presently, there often aren't. And some of the most powerful work I get to do, particularly with those survivors who I reach out to in the few days after their assault or after their experience of violence, is just hearing them and saying, I believe you and I'm so sorry this happened. Mm. So I have, I think I'll give three points to answer your question from my personal experience. My second incident of sexual abuse was over the course of a year. 
Uh, the first one was a one-off, and then the second one was like over a course of a year when I was about 14. And at that time, I was also like going through puberty, and it was when I was introduced to gay porn as well. Mm-hmm. And so there was so much shame for me of if I tell anyone what is happening to me, not only will I have to answer questions of what has been happening to you, but then if they find out that I've been watching gay porn, are you gay? And I was not at all in a place to talk about that. Fuck, that is like triple whammy shit to deal with yeah. at 14. So that's one. And then two, culturally speaking, I grew up going to church Sunday. Monday was choir practice. Wednesday was Bible study. I was in the church choir from the time I was a soprano to a tenor. <laughs> and <laughs> if there was a problem in your life, the advice given to you was give it up to God or take it to the church or pray about it. There wasn't a tangible source. When you're praying about it or talking to this person who's not actually speaking to you, what answers do you find? And how do you trust the answers that are coming to you? Mm. There was that element for me as well. And then the third element was my mother was a single parent and she was renting the house. Like the person was the super of the house. So if I tell her and what does that mean for us? Does that mean we have to move out of the house? Like what are the possible ramifications of me speaking up? It could completely destroy the home that we have. So those are just a few things that even though at that age I was not necessarily conscious about, you know, over the past 20 plus years of processing all of this and speaking about it publicly, these are the things that I found were, oh, these were reasons why I did not speak up because I was somewhere Mm -hmm. subconsciously aware. Yeah. Yeah. And afraid of these possible outcomes. And I'm just one person. Right. Exactly. One story. Yeah, I want to get back to this thing about the the church issue. And I know that there's like a large level of embarrassment that comes with this kind of a thing. Lindsay, I'd love to hear your take on it as far as like feeling like safe spaces, uh, what is supposedly a safe space isn't safe. So what are your what are your thoughts on that? Well, I have a lot of thoughts on that. I want to thank you, Antoine, for highlighting your own experience, because I feel like it's such a powerful example of the many ways that these like structural forces at play really make finding safety and healing harder for folks who hold certain identities. And if Mm. we are of color, if we are queer, if we are living in certain areas, whatever it may be, if we are already holding an identity that doesn't have access to resources or support that other identities do, it's so much harder to heal, to feel like you can speak and use your voice and get the care that you need. I certainly have worked with survivors of faith, but it's not even limited to faith. It's often just the fear of, you know, my family, regardless of religion. Maybe they're not religious at all. It's if they don't believe me, that's going to hurt so bad. I cannot face or live with the prospect of being shamed, being questioned, being told it was your fault. These are all things that have come up for survivors I've worked with. And sometimes the community response, their church, it could be their family, it could be their school, it could be their sorority, it could be whatever. The community response being harmful sometimes is more traumatic than the initial trauma itself because it's like I was in such a vulnerable place and I needed someone Mm -hmm. and you not only dropped the ball, you Mm -hmm. made me feel worse. And what message does that send about, right? Like surviving a trauma already tells us the world is not as safe as I thought it was. I don't have as much control as I thought I did. I cannot navigate the world in as safe a way as I thought. Let me go to the people I think I can trust. And if they can't support me either, 
what does that say? Often we do have survivors coming to us saying, I told this one person and they told me maybe I shouldn't have had that much to drink or whatever the messaging may be that's so stigmatizing and shaming and victim blaming. Yeah. Um, and that absolutely makes it harder for folks to disclose, to feel comfortable, to heal. I'm going to throw this in. So we're talking about these two spaces, right? The community spaces that don't Mm -hmm. feel safe and also like friends and close people. This is going to be broken record shit for anyone who's listening who knows me. I know, but it's worth saying again and again and again, if you can't control the community spaces and their response to you, we as friends and allies and advocates can do a whole fucking lot of stuff to make this easier, better, more healing for anyone who has survived violence. One of those, those things is believe survive. Pretty easy. But like I find it's useful to understand that our inclination as human beings for whatever reason is to like to pick at the truthfulness of something and minimize right and it's really helpful to understand that's probably where your brain's gonna go just fucking override it yeah number two don't make it weird. Like Antoine didn't choose to be a survivor of violence. He didn't ask for that. It is a thing about Antoine and we can fucking talk about it. You know what I mean? Like that's something we can do is like make it okay to talk about with your friends and acknowledge that it's tricky and it's hard, but we are in that shit together Mm -hmm. and be available for those conversations. If you're able to, if it's something that you know you can take on, be available for those conversations. Like we can help individually. We can help create spaces that are open for that kind of healing and processing. Off, so box, bye. Love it. No, no, no. I love that. And speaking of (laughs) compassion, I think we have another question that kind of like really goes to the community compassion, the thread. And I want to hear from, I want to hear from outside sources. Let's see what's, see what's going on. Question. What was your experience with the healthcare and law enforcement system, and what can those parties do to be more compassionate towards victims of sexual assault and violent crime? Good questions from the TM2C fam this week. For me, since I was so young, the thought of bringing in any type of law enforcement did not occur to me, or if I kind of drifted in that thought process, I retreated immediately out of a place of fear. Mm. Just preemptive fear. Yeah. Just, and the fear of that was how many people am I going to have to talk to this about? What questions am I going to have to answer? And, you know, my mother, in her effort to survive and maintain some sense of life for herself and for me as a family, because at this point my sisters are much, are older and we're out of the house. She never brought it up. She never asked if I wanted to go to the police. She never asked if I wanted to press charges or to bring a lawyer in all that stuff takes time and money that she did not have as a single mother working full-time monday through friday she didn't have the time to take off of work right and go sit down at a police station as i you know file a report and give a statement and all of that stuff and i have never faulted her for that and even as i got older And then became more aware, especially moving to New York and becoming more aware of the laws that are available to survivors. I was like, oh, okay. It's like, well, for me, that was not a journey to my healing. Like, but I understand its importance right. for a lot of people. And I don't even know what the statute of limitation might even be in Kansas City, Missouri. You know, like I have mm. no clue what that is. Mm-hmm. Nor would you even know what that existed, like when you were a kid, right? Like thinking exactly. about all this. Not a clue. Who, who knows what the statute of limitations is as a fourteen-year-old? Like exactly. Yeah, no clue. So for me, that wasn't that wasn't something I sought out or thought about. And even once I became aware of it. I had come to a place of healing, understanding, and peace for myself that I didn't need to exercise those things. 
Well, and Lindsay, I wonder if you can shed some light on this, because I know I personally just had a call last week with the development director of the National Children's Alliance. Generally, I understand it to be a national accrediting institution and also the institution that puts forth directives and services for centers that are specifically set up to take in children who have survived violence and like make sure that the legal process doesn't negatively impact their healing in those moments. Do you know much about that at all? Because I think there's one in New York State, right? I believe there is. I I wouldn't say that I've done a a ton of work with them personally or that Mm -hmm. I'm super aware of what they do, but I have some sense of the, the coordination that happens at those centers. And so you guys do it too, right? Yeah. So our advocate training just finished it in October. It's the largest one we ever did. Yes! Woo! Over, I believe it was like a hundred something. Oh, like shit. Uh, just That's over a awesome. hundred new volunteers have joined the ranks. Wow. And our advocate training program, these are folks who are committed personally to volunteering to get up out of bed because it only operates nights and weekends to go on call and they'll get a call in the middle of the night if a survivor of sexual assault or domestic violence is in one of our hospitals. And they'll go and they'll just be with the survivor. They will provide emotional support. They'll provide advocacy. They could provide information and resources. And depending on the survivor and their survivor's needs, that could look a whole host of different ways. You know, something that we've talked about again and again in training the new volunteers and always talk about and center in our own practices is this idea of the best way to be a supportive person is to begin the healing process right then and there. If you are interacting with a survivor, you know, even if you know nothing about their story or the specifics of what happened to them, you know that they had an experience of having control taken away from them without their consent in a way that did not feel good. Mm. And you could be the one to do something differently. And so from that first interaction, just returning agency and power to the survivor, having them make the decisions about what they want their medical care to look like, asking them if they even want you in the room, how you can support, you know, if they want someone else around who is a supportive person and wherever you are along the process, if you are a volunteer advocate in the hospital, if you are the therapist at CVTC, if you are the friend that someone is disclosing to for the first time, allowing that person to just speak to what they need and then believing and affirming them is already healing because you are already giving them an experience that they did not get to have. And do you know much about the ways in which you guys work with the police force here in New York in terms of like facilitating that kind of response? Yes, absolutely. So um, some of our, there are detectives who participate in our advocate training every year to have a better understanding for how they themselves. Yeah, Yeah, they're really great. It's so good to see them. It's kind of funny. You always know who the cops are in the room. They (laughs) definitely hold themselves in a very cop way. Oh, I was going to say they just have donuts and coffee. Well, listen, it is like a 40-hour training. We all have donuts and coffee. <laughs> Everybody's but got it. But it's so true. Like, I did it two years ago, and I was like, oh, these two behind me, they're yep. definitely... I didn't even know there were cops <laughs> in the room, know. but it was like blazer, white shirt, ponytail, very formal. <laughs> what I love is that they're in it, though. They are doing the same role plays as everyone else. They're having the same conversations about how to be supportive and affirming. So we really love that we've had the opportunity to train police officers who are responding, who are often some of the first people people to show up and talk to a survivor immediately after an experience of violence. And that's been a really great partnership to have. Do you know if this is a requirement by law enforcement? It's a little, um, it's not a requirement that they go through our advocate training, but special victims units that we have relationships with do tend to send a Mm -hmm. few folks every year. They also have their own training. 
But it's really great when they come to ours. I mean, I think we provide a great training. So Absolutely. when they come to ours, um, to know that they're there um, and to see them participate, especially knowing that, again, for really good reasons, a lot of survivors have really complicated relationships with police and with law enforcement. And right. that's a history. They could be the most well-intentioned detective in the world, but that's a history that they're carrying with them when they come into that room. And for them to be able yeah. to be responsive and affirming is so important and necessary to make that survivor feel safe. Okay, so the way I understand it from the training that I have been to and obviously having friends, like the language for having survived a incidence of violence is that it's incredibly destabilizing in the moment and your brain is not necessarily working in a logical manner at that time. So my question is, and now, listening to this podcast, when you're not in the middle of a traumatic experience, what from your guys's, both of you, your standpoints, can we download, learn, put in our brains right now so that perhaps someone who's listening won't feel as scared of like the law or police getting involved, like you were saying, Antoine, you know, like in that moment, if it happens to you, you don't have time to think real logically, obviously, like what can we kind of put forward as takeaways on this podcast episode? I'll speak from two points of view. The first is, say, I am the person who comes into the ER having to deal with all of this. I would like to believe that there will be some sort of system in place that you can ask for what you need and that even if the initial, the way in which someone is interacting with you, a police officer specifically, might seem abrupt. Like I just recently heard a, a presenter say, you know, police are there to catch the bad guy. And unfortunately, a lot of police officers may not have enough sensitivity training to understand how to effectively interact with uh, the victim in that moment because time is of the essence. And I mean, I honestly can't even fathom trying to process in the moment like all mm-hmm. of those things and then think about, oh, this person is here to ensure my safety, even if I don't understand what their right. methods are right. in this moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is, in my belief, their ultimate goal is to ensure the safety of the victim. Now, from the opposite side as an advocate is I've heard so many advocates say there is a wealth of knowledge that they possess and there is a power that they possess and a privilege they possess as advocates so that they are there for the well-being of their client. If the officer or the nurses or the doctor, whoever that is that is outside of their client, is not understanding of that, the advocates, they know what they're doing. And so they Mm -hmm. can assert themselves in as much way as they can to be of service to their client, but also to be respectful of the job that has to be done. And so that was a, a takeaway that I had in hearing advocates speak about the work that they do and saying, you know, We have a power and we have a privilege because of what we do on a day-to-day basis and what what they experience on a day-to-day basis. And so allow yourself to assert that regardless of what someone might perceive of you or whatever that is. Like, you know what you're doing. You're there because you are a specialist to provide services for your client. And if someone is being too aggressive, like, please, can I just have a moment? Check with my client. So from those standpoints, you know, the person on the table looking at someone, they are there to ensure your safety, even if you don't understand the methods. If you're there supporting that person, you have the power and the expertise and the knowledge you need to ensure the safety and comfort of your client. And don't be afraid to speak up and assert that. 
So if you're talking about asserting yourself into the situation, um, you're not trying to impede an investigation, right? You're just trying to maintain sensitivity over the situation so that the victim can have the most coherent recollection of the situation and be prepared for maybe some abrasive questions or some very difficult questions at a very difficult that is time. Correct. Are you asking about the advocate? Sorry, I just for me. Yes, I'm asking about the advocate. Yeah, I would say um, the advocate is there, like Anton was saying, first and foremost for the survivor. Part of that role can look very differently depending on the situation. But if they are in the hospital and the police have been called, it might mean talking to the survivor about like that, you know, before the cop comes in. How would you feel if they ask you a question that doesn't sit right with you or feels a little abrasive? Would you like me to speak up? And reminding the survivor, you have the right to not answer any question. You have the right to tell them that you don't want to talk. You have the right to change your mind or not want to make a report. You have the right to be like, I'll take your card, but I don't want to have this conversation right now. Please leave. Like the advocate can do a lot of sort of like emotional support or planning for what that interaction might look like. The advocate can say, do you want me to be with you while you talk to the police officer? Would that be comforting or would you like me to leave? Mm -hmm. And I think Antoine highlighted something important, which is that the police do have this goal of like, we need to catch the bad guy. And sometimes that means asking questions that someone's not in a place that they're ready to respond to that really don't feel great, that they don't want to think about. And it might mean that that person might decide like, oh, maybe I don't want to go through with this. Maybe I don't want to talk to the police. It is the survivor's right always to choose not to do that. And to respond to something you mentioned earlier, Jess, about like, what does someone need to know if they're in this like trauma? place. It's that you get to decide what feels right to you. Mm -hmm. You know, speaking to the people who might support a friend or loved one through this situation, the survivor gets to decide what feels right to them. And they don't have to go through with anything that they're not comfortable with. And the most important thing they do in the aftermath of, again, having this experience denied them is to center their own needs and take care of themselves. I feel like as the layperson, but who fields a lot of questions on this topic, I think that's the biggest thing that people don't know is that if you are in a situation which you need to go to the ER or you've survived violence and you haven't decided to go get treatment and are thinking about it, there are so many systems in place. People are trained within an inch of their lives in so many places and it's all to be there for you. All of it, you know, and I wish I think to myself, that's what I hope that everyone takes away from this is that they know that this actually exists in great depth in a lot of places for survivors of violence. Yeah, absolutely. Hospitals that are safe centers of excellence or hospitals that are held to the state standards to be able to provide these services and these programs to survivors when they come through the emergency room. Mm -hmm. Okay, so on that note of like things I've heard over the years from people, I'm very excited because someone sent in a story and question Mm. that I would say is the number one thing I get asked on a day-to-day basis when people ask me about topics of survivors. And it's also something I have had to go to CBTC and ask myself because I just did not know the answer. So I'm very thrilled we're going to get to talk about that. The first time a friend told me that they had been a victim of sexual violence, I I blanked. I don't I don't remember it. She said, I have something to tell you. And that's the last thing I remember. Since then, I've gotten much better at listening to my friends, but I I don't know what to say when I hear something like that. I don't know how to respond in a way that's helpful. Naturally, I have questions, but I know that they're usually inappropriate to ask um, because my assumption has always been that I needed to be a good listener, but there must be something I can say or do so that I don't feel like I'm just watching from the sidelines 
but I also don't feel like I'm being too invasive or inconsiderate. Ah, that is such a beautiful question to ask. I can't even tell you how many times I've marched into CVTC and been like, you have to sit down and talk to me about how to do this. (laughs) Mm -hmm. The first thing I would uh, suggest anyone saying, say thank you so much for trusting me to share this with me. Um, again, it goes to like wanting to be heard, wanting to be validated. And you can also say, I have no idea how you are feeling right now. So I can't even imagine. It's okay to acknowledge the things you don't know. It is more than okay to acknowledge the things that you don't know and don't understand in that moment. And then lastly, I would just say, ask that person, what do you need from me? Like that one question. And I've been in situations where people have experienced some sort of trauma and then they decided to disclose to me. And, you know, I had a Rolodex of questions rolling in my head and I just said, okay, what do you need from me? How can I help you? They might know. They may have an answer to that question in that moment. Their answer could be ABC. It could be, I don't know. I just want to sit here. You know, just allow for the space and allow for whatever that answer is that they give you. Because I don't think any survivor who discloses is going to require the person that they're disclosing to, to have any answers. Mm -hmm. They just want to not be alone on that Island of fear, shame, embarrassment, and anxiety. They just Mm -hmm. want to know someone else is there so that if they feel themselves slipping away in some way, shape or form, that either they can reach out for another person or someone is going to see them and catch them. Okay, Lindsay, on those three points, I think sometimes for folks, certainly for myself, when I first learned some of this, the idea that I should memorize these three like ways to say something feels like, I don't know, really? So could you break down what it means to a survivor listening, each of those, thank you so much for trusting me to share this. I have no idea how you must be feeling. What do you need from me? Like, can you just get a little further into why those things are great, like clinically, maybe why they're great things to say to someone in that situation? Absolutely. Because those are perfect responses. And I love them. And <laughs> I do think people get like really understandably nervous about like, I want to say the right thing. And and there you go. Um, those are perfect things to say. Starting off with thank you for sharing this with me. Thank you for trusting me with this is so validating because it's acknowledging that that person is really vulnerable and you know that they have given you this gift of their vulnerability they are trusting you with maybe the scariest saddest hardest thing that's ever happened to them and you're acknowledging yeah i know that's what you just did and i'm not taking it lightly like this is a big mm-hmm. deal and i see you and i hear you so that i think can be in and of itself just like really validating Acknowledging, you know, I don't know what you're going through. I can only imagine what this is like. Nobody ever wants to hear like, I get it. Or Mm. I know what you're going through. I know how it is. Like, no, you don't. Excuse me. Like, (laughs) shut the fuck up. Can I curse? I don't know. I just, I just did. So yes, like, don't pretend, you know, and even if you've experienced a similar act of violence in your life, you don't know what it means to be that person experiencing it Mm. in that Mm -hmm. way at that time. And so for you Mm. to own that and be like, this is hard and I don't have the answers and I'm not going to pretend to know what it's like for you, I think really validates all that confusion 
confusion and fear that that survivor is sitting with. And so they're not like, it's not absurd for them to be feeling all the feelings that they're feeling. And then saying, what do you need is so beautiful because again, we're returning power and agency to the survivor who had that taken from them. Mm. So it's like, I want to hear from you. I'm not going to force you to do anything you don't want to do. I'm not here to tell you what the right thing is. I'm not here to shame you for not doing something. I'm not here to judge you for the choices you've already made thus far. I just want to hear what do you need. And I really like that, Antoine, you offered that the survivor might not really have an answer to that. They might not have a clear sense of like, I want to do X, Y, Z. It might be all they need is just to say it and to have someone hear it and hold it. And often when we are in the position of supporting someone, we're afraid we're not doing enough, especially if we care about that person. We want so badly to fix it, to make things better, to make it all Mm -hmm. go away. We can't, nor do we need to try. Just being with a survivor, being Mm -hmm. a supportive, loving presence who's willing to believe them, hear them, center their agency, that in and of itself is healing. Absolutely. Okay, so uh, someone comes to you and discloses and they do ask for your help, right? And trying to find a place to go or whatever. Where is the line and what do you do between following up or making sure that they know you're there to like help them, even if they don't immediately do it and also like giving them the space to choose what they do? Do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I have experienced this personally, like someone discloses and then I just feel terrible. It turns out they don't want to talk about it anymore. And that's super okay. But like, I want them to know that I'm there if they need me and that I, I haven't forgotten about it or taken it lightly. Do you, does that make sense? Yeah. And I would encourage you to say that exactly because it's so honest it's really again allowing the survivor to choose what they need Mm. you can say like I get you might need space from this and you don't want to be talking about it all the time and if you're ready and when you want to if you want to I'm here I haven't forgotten about you that's such Mm -hmm. a lovely thing to offer someone yeah I fully agree with that and you know I think also depending on the relationship you have with that person because I've been at events where I've spoken and then someone I meet You know, they may have heard me talk for the last 20 to 45 minutes and then they come and say, hello, thank you so much for sharing your story. Oh, also, Mm -hmm. or whatever that interaction is. Actually, I have a there's a story. uh, I spoke at a conference last summer and a woman I never met, never saw her. She found my website, uh, contacted me via email and just said me sharing my story with her. And in, in my story, I shared how I became like an emotional perpetrator in my own relationships because I was so afraid of losing control in my relationships that I learned how to manipulate the men I was in relationships with. Mm. And I acknowledged that I was doing that. And so she recognized that within herself from hearing me say that. And she was saying how she was in a new relationship. She was having a hard time accepting the love that was being given to her. And she's like, but hearing you talk and hearing you share what you've been through, she's like, I am now going to like let this person love me for the way they want to love me. And I'm going to seek help. Mm-hmm. I will never know what she looks like. I may never see her again. So in that instance, whether it's specifically one-on-one, I want you to know I'm here for you. Mm-hmm. Like Offering that is there for that person to carry for as long as they choose to carry it. And maybe they'll circle back around to you if it's someone that's in your life or has been in your life for a much longer time. Maybe in the, you know, if it's been a few months, like, hey, just wanted to check in, see how you're doing. Hope you're doing well. I've been thinking about you, whatever that is. And just letting them know that you're still there for them, even if they have not specifically reached out to you. 
that's super helpful. Thanks. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I mean, I've been thinking here. Um, I haven't said anything for a little while because I'm just kind of taking all this brilliance in. I hate to say this is a dumb question because there are no dumb questions. And this is for somebody coming from like complete lay perspective. As someone who's listening, as someone who is the, the, the receiver of information, is there a moment where you, as a, a the receiver of information of a domestic dispute or violence or anything like that, is there a legal obligation? Well, this is for both of you guys. Like, when do you step into that mm. realm of like, I should say something, but I don't want to like uh, disrespect mm. the, the information. I, I want to be a person who's like receiving information and being a good supportive listener and friend. But do you decide? Do you decide? When do you say something? Do you proffer it to them? Like, do you go, listen, this is bad. You wake up every day and you've got bruises or whatever. And that's one thing. But emotional distress is also something you can't see. And you're like, this is happening. Do we tell somebody in law enforcement or do we tell somebody, you know what I mean? Like, when does it go to the next level? So I would say, though, I, I have a lot of compassion for that impulse of like, it's hard to see someone you care about get hurt, especially if it's an mm-hmm. ongoing, repeated, seems like it's escalating. That's terrifying to know that someone you care about is going through that. Yeah. And it is not okay to involve law enforcement without the survivor's consent. And you can actually okay. deeply further endanger them by doing so. Often, and there's a lot of research that indicates when the police become involved, the abuser will escalate the violence in retaliation. And so if you've created a situation where without the survivor's consent, you've invited police in, A, you're creating a situation in which that survivor might get further hurt. B, you're also replicating the same circumstances that that survivor's already experiencing in that someone Mm. else is making decisions for them in violation of what they deem they need for themselves. Uh. And that is not protective, even if it's coming from a good, caring place. That said, you can share your concerns with that person. Like, I am so worried about you. I see this getting worse. I wonder if there's anyone we can call or any way we can keep you safe. I wonder if there are even resources, if there's, if you'd be willing to go talk to someone, if you'd be willing to go to an agency or provider like CVTC just to get some support, even if you're still in this relationship. That might be your way of offering care and protection. But in terms of involving law enforcement, I would say that is a huge, huge, huge risk and violation of the survivor's agency. I cannot believe it. Our hour is gone. It is gone. And I feel like there's so much more to talk about. And I have something to say about that. But as we start to wrap it up, first and foremost, if you have survived violence and you're in the tri-state area and you are looking for help, support, and services, Lindsay, how can they get a hold of CVTC? They should absolutely call the number that's on our website. Just go to cvtcnyc.org and they can call and they can talk a little bit about what's happened to them, what they're looking for, and they can come in for an intake and and learn more about our services. And if someone's not in the tri-state area and is listening and is thinking about reaching out to find services, do you know what they should do? So I would say there's a number of national resources, for example, uh, for sexual violence resources like RAIN, and they will also link to providers in the survivor's area. It might take some Googling. People are also welcome to call us and reach out, and we will do our best to connect them in their area. Awesome. And if you're just an advocate and an ally for folks who have survived violence, you can follow CVTC on most social media. It's at CVTC NYC, I think everywhere, right, Lindsay? Yes, it is. Awesome. All right. And then Antoine, if people want to be following what you're doing, will you tell us a little bit about what you do on social media and how they can find you? Yes. So I, uh, for those of you watching, I'm wearing a pin, (laughs) P-I-N. That'd be weird if you were wearing a ballpoint pen. Yeah, well, I want to write something down <laughs> uh, that has on it 
the logo Soldier of Love, which was a social media campaign I began three years ago. The hashtag is not mine outright, but I do want to be associated with it as much as possible. So on social media, you can find me at Antoine, A-N-T-U-A-N, Raymond, R-A-I-M-O-N-E, or Antoine Magic Raymond, depending on which one you're on. But I'm on Instagram, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook. Soldier of Love started for me as a way to empower people to be their first and strongest source of love. Um, We live in a society of scarcity, not abundance, and a lot of us believe that love is not a renewable resource, and I disagree. I used to be a person who did not think love was a renewable resource and was very afraid to offer that to other people because I thought if I did, I would deplete my own source. Mm. And I have since found through the work I've done with the CVTC and being able to be that support and strength to myself first, and that is key. In whatever modality you choose, whether it's crystals, meditation, yoga, therapy, things that fulfill you and sustain you, once you are able to be there for yourself in a way that you need to and that you know and you trust, it will allow you to be that person for other people. And that is why I'm able to talk about being a survivor because I've done the work Mm -hmm. that I need to do for myself in order for me to help others. And that is, I am first and foremost a soldier of love for myself to be a soldier of love for others. I'm developing a Soldier of Love website (sighs) that I'm planning to launch either between Christmas and New Year's or just after the New Year. I haven't decided exactly yet. So that will be a source of empowerment, encouragement, bookings, book me to come speak (laughs) as well (laughs) um, for life, love, whether you're a survivor, whether you are someone in the arts. If you are a human being, (laughs) we all need sources of love, and I will be glad to tailor my talk to come and support you in being that source. Amazing. And since our episode felt short and there's so many questions, everyone who's listening, you can head to tm2cpodcast.com slash guests slash CVTC, and you'll find Antoine's video ask and his call for questions on that page. If you've got a question after this episode... Doesn't matter if you think it's stupid. There are no stupid questions. Andrew and I know. There are no stupid questions. Click on his video ask on tm2cpodcast.com and submit a question. We'll collect them and uh, get some of them answered on our social media Instagram stories across Antoine's and uh, the TM2C podcast channels. Yes, gladly. Please do. Please ask anything you are comfortable asking, and I will answer it or find an answer for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, Antoine, I think this is the first time on this podcast that I've ever actually like welled up and started to cry a little bit. And uh, I just got to say thank you, man. Thank you for your story. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your passion. Um, Lindsay, you as well. Like The work that you do is just incomparable, and it is just it's beautiful. It's all the things. So I really appreciate you guys coming on today. Thank you for having Thanks, me. Andrew. I got a big old hug coming for you when I see you. Oh, you know what? <laughs> see you at work. Thank you all so much. And Antoine, thank you for everything that you do and for sharing your story today. And I love talking with y'all and having coffee with y'all. And this was great. Likewise. I've been waiting to have that conversation since we started this podcast. It was amazing. I'm I'm still just kind of like relishing in, you know, the story of Antoine and just the whole idea that so many people that we're so close to have the same kind of story. They're not all the same. You know, they're they're shitty people in this world. And I thank God that we have people like this that are out there that are sympathetic, that empathize, that have curated safe space. Well, that's the thing, I think, right? 
there are certainly shitty people and I like don't have time to even think about them. When I think about survivors and I think about CBTC and any other center that does work like it, yeah. what they do, I think about strength, yeah. resilience, oh yeah, hope, yes. courageousness, like all of those things for anyone who survived violence or someone who provides that treatment in that yeah. space that you're talking about. There is actually so much gorgeous yeah. like beauty built out of that. I can only imagine that that process is hard won and incredibly yeah. challenging, but that's what inspires me every day that I stand up and speak up for survivors. And my, my main takeaway from today was is like how to support someone without making it about yourself, right? Because I get to a point where I'm like, oh, well, I had the same kind, you know what I mean? You try to put your experience on it or this is how I try to explain something to you because I know how this feels or I know blah 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 that's not this this is not how you deal with something like this give them time to get their thoughts together and make it about them yep totally so friends thank you so much for listening to this episode I know we talked about it at length in the intro but I want to remind you again since this podcast was created by Broadway Unlocked and every year Broadway Unlocked puts on the Give Back concert which in part supports CBTC and survivors of violence we have on this Giving Tuesday released every single video from last year's Give Back concert and they are there's some doozies. there's some it's unbelievable so people the performances some are unbelievable amazing performances. Yeah. holy shit and all of our Broadway writers actually wrote songs most of them based on writings of survivors of violence so all the songs that you'll see when you head to our YouTube channel were inspired by survivors of violence and it's a really beautiful tribute to the works that cbtc does so head over to youtube.com slash broadway unlocked to watch those videos and we will have a link in every single video for you to donate to crime victims treatment center on this giving tuesday that money goes straight to survivors of violence and uh, supporting their work it's unrestricted which means they can use it on a specific program they can also use it to help some one escape a dangerous situation get a bus ticket to Atlanta you know what I mean or something like that it's incredibly incredibly impactful when you donate to CBTC and we hope that you will generously do that as sort of inspiration from this episode yeah just don't forget that like though you may see people in your daily life they may be going through something right they may have like experienced something or done Mm -hmm. something just be compassionate. Don't forget to follow Antoine on Twitter. He's at Antoine Ramon, which is R-A-I-M-O-N-E. We'll put mm-hmm. it down in the show notes for you. And on Instagram, he's Antoine Magic Ramon, because that is his nickname <laughs> in the Broadway biz. Uh, and you can also follow CBTC on Instagram at CBTCNYC. And you know what? Head on over to Twitter if you want to follow us, TM2C Podcast. But you can also ask your questions for upcoming guests. And you can also let us know about someone smart and cool you follow online that you think that we should talk to. That is it for this very special Giving Tuesday episode of Take Me to Coffee. And now you know the drill. It's your turn. One, check out new episodes every Thursday on your favorite podcasting thingamabobbyboob. Two, for special bonus content, including being able to see Antoine's beautiful Soldier of Love pin and not being able to see Lindsay because she didn't have any video. (laughs) Join our coffee club over at Patreon, www.patreon.com slash TM2C podcast. Your contribution helps us do the things that we do and we continue to make this podcast for you with you and completely ad free no one will tell us what to do we do what we want three download these episodes we've got out i think this is like number 16 or 17 bunch of bonus episodes take a listen to something that interests you leave us a review if you can spare a couple of minutes that actually really really helps and uh help us uh, stay up in those uh podcast charts i'm andrew i'm jess we'll see, see you next week, week. Well
you have